It's good to be back with you again this evening. I want to thank you all for your hospitality, your welcoming spirit. Um, I'm feeling kind of weary by this point, but none of that is your fault. Um, you all have done a good job at countering that. The illustration I'm going to use this evening is not original with me. It was shown to me a couple years ago now. There was a group of us um, together for a meeting and somebody shared this illustration. I'm thinking this is probably the fourth time I have um, used this illustration. And every time I consider using it, I realize it could come across fairly condemning. Um, as I said, the, the illustration is not original with me. And I know when, when it was shown to me, I was condemned. I was convicted. And a number of the people who were with me um, that first time I saw it, uh, we, we together, we, we were convicted. We, we felt a certain condemnation from it. And as I was pondering that again yesterday, I realized that the parts in my notes that hit me hard and made me wonder about that condemning feeling I was getting, they're simply based on observations of my own heart and life. And the society we live in, and even sadly, the lives of Christians, some of them close to me. And no, that doesn't mean I've been thinking, oh, brother so-and-so needs to get this, or sister so-and-so better hear, um, hear the message this evening. It's just one of the unpleasant facts of life um, revealed. These three chairs, I guess I need to remember there are people who listen from afar. Um, we have three... I was going to set up three actual folding chairs up here and realized it'd be a little hard for everybody in the congregation to see them. So I have three pictures of folding chairs here on the wall. Everyone in this room today is in one of these chairs. And the plan tonight is that we figure out where we sit in these chairs. You can open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. <clears throat> we'll read verses 14 and 15 and then jump down and grab a, a verse toward the end of the um, chapter. Joshua 24 verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other sides of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that are on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then in verse 31, Israel served the Lord God all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done 
for Israel. Now jump over into Judges, the next book, chapter 2. We're going to read two verses from chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work he had done for Israel. So firstly, these chairs, these three chairs represent three generations of people that we see here in these passages. First generation, second generation, third generation. In my mind, I see it as one, two, three. In Joshua 24, we have that famous verse where Joshua says, Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The verses uh, leading up to that statement, he says, Fear and choose. He says, But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's chair number one on our uh, chairs here this evening. Chair number two is what is referred to in these passages as the generation of the elders. In Joshua 24, 31, it says, they knew the works of the Lord. That's chair number two, people. Chair number one is occupied by people who, they're not perfect, but they serve God. They're sold out for him. God is their everything. And if... If we're looking at this as the generational drift we see here in Joshua and Judges, those sitting in chair two then, they, they were born into a family that was sold out to the Lord. They were the next generation after that generation that said, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. They were born into that family. They, they grew up with a mother and father who weren't perfect, but served God, were sold out. But this chair two, this generation two, it says they knew the Lord, but they weren't, they weren't as sold out. They failed to keep the candle burning. They failed to pass the baton because once we get to chair three, it says they didn't know the Lord. Joshua uh, and Judges 2, Joshua and the elders, it says both Joshua and the elders, they saw the works. So chairs one and two, they saw the work of God in action. But when all of chair two were gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Statistically, someone growing up in a Christian home is much more likely to accept Christ than someone who doesn't. But that likelihood changes depending on whether their parents are choosing to sit in chair one or chair two. The people in chair two you can, you can start to wonder, why are they even there at, at church events, for example? Um, they know the Lord, but, but they're not sold out. It, it's, it's not all-consuming for them. So why are they even getting together at, at church events? Maybe it's because of chair one. Maybe they're being brought to church by chair one. Maybe they're still living at home and their parents are taking them to these things. Or, or maybe just as likely... The chair two person um, sees, they have seen the vibrance in the life of those people who sit in chair one that are sold out for God. 
And well, one of the things that a chair one person does is they go to church and gather with fellow believers. And so, well, they're going to do that too. They're going to see what that does. So, so the chair two person goes to church, joins a church, does churchy stuff, maybe even serves on committees and all that. But when you're sitting in chair two, you're a lot more likely to be critical, focus a lot on the hypocrisy that you see. See, the chair two person has, has a different value system than the chair one person because it's not all-consuming for them. It's just a part of who they are. And then when they have children, they drag them to church. And, and they, the, these children in chair three, who are now being dragged to church by lukewarm people sitting in chair two, they know their parents don't really enjoy it that much. And chair three believes that the church is made up of people, of, of chair two people. For the most part, they're, they're, they're relating to, to that, that lukewarm group that has brought them there. And, and so they, they look around and then they notice and focus on the negatives and, and the hypocrisy. And chair three can, can start to believe that that's just what the church is made up of, of, of chair two people. And not really knowing about chair one potentially until someone shows them or until they see someone who, who occupies chair one, someone who is sold out for God. See, chair two people, they want to act like chair one people. They saw, they, they watched, they saw how it happens. But, but there's an aspect to which they don't live the Christian life, the Christian life so much as they act it. They, it it's just one of the things they do. Whereas the person in chair one, life is following God. That is the definition of life. Whereas when you're sitting in chair two, following God is one of the things you do. Now, that means, for the most part, the people that I'm thinking of sitting in chair two, they, they want the experience of being a child of God, but they don't really want to live as a child of God. They want to experience the experience. They've seen the work of God in chair one, but they really don't want to walk the walk. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to look at three types of people that Paul mentions that line up with this illustration and what we see of these generations in, um, in Joshua and Judges. Joshua and Judges, we had the sold out, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the generation of the elders that came after, it says, they knew the Lord. And yet there was something there that they were not able to pass anything on to that third generation. The third generation came along. They did not know the Lord. They did not even know what the Lord had done for those previous generations. Paul gives us three types of people laid out in 1 Corinthians that line up pretty much exactly with those people we saw in, in Joshua and Judges and, and we have sitting in our chairs here this evening. We're going to start in, I should do it in the same order we did the Joshua and Judges. So we'll start in um, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 15. 
Well, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now, if we jump over into chapter 3, and verse 1, uh, the first three verses. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So in these two chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses three words to describe people that mesh with this illustration we're looking at this evening. He uses spiritual, which would be our chair one people. He uses carnal, which would be our chair two people. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, he says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal babes in Christ. I had to feed you milk and no solid food. This is the chair two person. They know God, and yet... He's saying, I had to feed you milk, no solid food. And chair three people are what Paul calls natural in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. This is the person who is functionally an animal. He has the power of choice, but, but he's just, he's trying his best to prove Darwin right, survival of the fittest, just, he's just going along with things. Paul says there uh, at the end of, sorry, I was in the wrong chapter there. Um, end of verse 14. Oh, sorry. Uh, verse 3, chapter 1. I mean, ah, verse 3, chapter 3. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? I get this just sense of dripping disappointment in Paul's voice. Just mere men. You're just a a plain old human. You haven't been, you're just giving into your baser instincts. That's the natural man. You don't often have chair three people become chair two people. For the most part, chair two is slid into from chair one. You slide from sold out to I don't feel like putting the effort in anymore. You don't usually sit in chair three, natural man, excuse me, um, yeah, natural man, just completely blah about God and following him at all, and then say, well, I'm going to follow him a little bit. Generally, when God gets hold of someone, they jump to chair one. They say, I'm in it for you, God. And then the danger is that we slide into chair two over time. See, the chair three person doesn't really see anything appealing in chair two. The natural man doesn't really see much appealing in the life of the, the carnal man. The one that knows God, but is just not really sold out for God. There's not much appealing to the person who doesn't even know God, to that person. But if they catch a glimpse of that chair one life, that may be the thing that God uses to reveal himself and his plan to them. When they see that person that is just sold out for God, that may be the thing 
that, that moves them from natural man to spiritual. I said statistically speaking, someone growing up in a Christian home is much more likely to accept Christ. But that likelihood changes depending on whether their parents are choosing to sit in chair one or chair two. Because someone growing up in a home surrounded by chair two people is not very likely to see anything they really want. See, chair, chair three would turn to chair two, and they would observe and see that Christianity is just one of the many things that those people do. But sold out? No. To their job, maybe, or to getting ahead, or maybe just simply sold out to stability. But not sold out to God. See, the testimony of someone sitting in chair two usually goes something like, many years ago, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and it changed my life. Chair two is the type of person that says, the Bible is the most important book to me, but they don't even know where there is a lot of the week. And chair three looks at that and says, I don't want that. If I'm trying to get ahead in life, why would I not sleep in on Sunday, use the rest of the day to get work done, instead of going to a group of, remember, they're mostly seeing chair two people, a group of lukewarm maybe hypocritical people, and hang out with them, and I would just be another lukewarm, hypocritical person. Why would I do that? They don't see any, they don't see any draw or any value if they're sitting in chair three, just natural man, and look at chair two, the carnal man who is not sold out for God. It makes no logical sense to them. I said, chair, the, the testimony of person in chair two is often something like many years ago I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and it changed my life. When you ask someone in chair one for their testimony, they're more likely to say, last week God did whatever in my life. Or, you know, yesterday when I was reading in Philippians 2, I realized whatever. Or when I was at the store on Wednesday, I met this lady and we had a conversation about God that is more what you hear from the chair one person when you ask about their testimony. The chair two person is more, once upon a time, I gave my life to the Lord and now I live happily ever after. Chair two's testimony can usually only go back to when they sat in chair one and they, they sold out in the good way. They, they, they gave it all for God. Chair three people can, can sometimes not even believe that chair one is real, partly because when you come to church, chair one and chair two can talk and sound pretty similar. But chair three, you know, they've been up close and personal to some chair two people away from church, and they go, well, this person's no different than me other than when they cross through those church doors. Think back to our verses in, in Joshua and Judges. Chair one, chair two, chair three, chair one, knew God. Chair two, knew God. Chair three, didn't know God. It says chair one, had the works. Chair two, saw or knew the works. And chair three, didn't even know the works of God. Chair three, if, if we're thinking back to the, the, the children of Israel, they're described in Joshua and Judges. Chair three people didn't even know about the Red Sea opening up to dry land. They didn't know the works of God or the manna and the quail, uh, the crossing of the Jordan. They didn't know those things. They didn't know the works of God, it said. And so someone sitting in chair two, the, the generation of the elders, if they turn to talk to someone in chair three 
and said, you know, when Jericho fell down, what, what are you talking about? Yes, they marched around and yelled and the walls fell down and the person in chair three, yeah, right. What, what was the magic word? And what happened when they fell down? They, they don't, they have no concept of the works of God. It's just all fairy tales to them. And so if the person in chair three hasn't seen God working in, in his parents' life, if his parents are sitting in, in chair two, because, well, what they were pursuing was stability and success, and that doesn't really leave God a whole lot of room to work in their life. And so the person in chair three looks and they see, well, dad's just out to make sure that everything is stable and successful in my life. I don't really see much that God's doing here. Dad's doing it all. The greats of faith sit in chair one. The people you think of, the Apostle Paul, think of, think of someone sold out for God. He was firmly rooted in chair one while he was standing in front of chair one. Or, or George Mueller, the, the man who, who saw the need to, to help the orphans, um, true religion, to help the orphans, and, and you read about his life story and how he chose to, to do what he could for these needy children when he didn't know if there'd be enough food tomorrow to feed him and them. That's someone seated firmly in chair one. He was sold out to do the right thing and, and he was going to trust God to provide and he was just going to keep on marching the way God had pointed him. They know God is mighty. The person in chair one knows God is mighty. They've decided God wants to intervene and do mighty things. They've decided to lose their life and give it to him and surrender. We're Mennonites, so we don't really like it that Paul talks about predestination. Um, Paul talks about predestination. And I get the idea of a person in chair one has a sense of destiny. That they are called to do something that is eternal in its importance. They struggle through their own sins and take care of them. They bring them to God. They're cleaned up through the power of the Holy Spirit. They discipline themselves in their walk in the word. They get on their knees and pray. And the tests come and they hit them head on. Those sitting in the first chair, they say, no, they, they say and live, I want to maximize for eternity. I want to bring heaven down to earth through me. I want the kingdom of God right here, right now, and I'm going to be his instrument to make it happen. When I cross the line from time to eternity, I want to hear, well done, not, well, you made it. There's a book and a movie, Schindler's List, and I don't remember what all was... I don't remember what all I saw in the movie and what all I read in the book anymore. Long time ago. But it was about a man who, um, who worked in, in saving Jews during the Holocaust in World War II. And he was a wealthy man. He had a factory and he put, he put um, a, lot of, a lot of the Jewish people to work and, and was able to provide and, and ran sort of a, an underground railroad of sorts. And he had it down to... Um, he knew basically this is how much of my fortune, um, how, how, many, how many lives I can save. 
And so when he saw a person, he saw a soul and over it, he saw that it will only take me X amount of money and I can save that person from certain death in, in a Nazi camp. And there's this scene, again, I don't remember if, if it's shown in the movie or if it's, in, if it's just in the book or, or how it is, but it's, it's toward the end of the war and I, I think he's, he's getting ready to go somewhere. And he, he's there and he sees these people around him that, that he's been able to work with and he looks and he has something like a, a silver pen or a gold pen. And he looks and he says, well, that's worth however much money that's two people that I could have saved if I had just sold this pen and used that. That's two souls that would still be alive on this earth if I had just sold that pen or, or this ring or that watch and, and he's looking at just his possessions and, and uh, I think maybe his vehicle. You know, Well, I could have sold that and that money could have gone to, to saving six souls from certain death in a death camp. That, do I have that kind of urgency about how I'm spending my life and my time and my resources in the here and now in light of eternity? Or am I a little more interested in, you know, if I get an extra 2000 built up in the bank this month, then that buffer will be a lot better when it comes time to replace the car whenever. Where is my focus and where, where is my drive? Do I have that kind of a burden? And do I, see, do I see the souls around me as these are people I need to do my part in reaching for God? How is it we find ourselves so easily seated in that second chair? And of course, while they're, they're representing generations as far as Joshua and Judges go and generational drift, I hope you're gathering it's, it's more of a current, but it's one you can swim against. You are not destined to land in chair two just because, well, my parents were chair one, so I guess I'm going to end up in chair two. No, this is, this is just the natural progression if you don't fight it. This, 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 this drift is, is a current you can swim against. It's about the choices you are going to make so you don't end up like the generations of Joshua. Or think of David, Solomon, Rehoboam. That's another example of, of, of a, a generational shift that just went with the natural progression. All of them, though, had a choice. They didn't have to do that. One writer said the most innocent way to hell is spiritual procrastination. Dreadfully preoccupied people who are busy at present with urgent matters, innocently carrying on believing that eternity is the business of tomorrow. How does one, how does one forget their God and even their own soul for weeks, years, even a lifetime? It's the same way you hide a rhinoceros in the middle of a room. If, if I had... If I had a rhino in, um, well, it wouldn't really fit in the little vestibule back there, but if I had a rhino right outside the back doors of the, of the church here, how do you think I might be able to, to get it into this room without people noticing? By first releasing into this room millions of mice. 
Everybody would be focused on all the diversions of the millions of mice, and somebody could march the rhino right in. Diversion. Endless diversions. So that wave of mice consuming careers, birthday parties, dirty dishes, whining children, trips, housework, YouTube videos, clicking, typing, scrolling. There's always something available to distract me from God, even if he is much bigger than any rhino. But there's always a million little things available there to distract me from him. I read one author said, we be, we've become overstimulated, overcaffeinated souls that cannot endure inactivity. Jittery spirits cannot attend to prayer or sit calmly with the Bible. Those millions of distractions have become um, the stimulation that we crave to, to feel alive and keep going. We oh, look at this and look at that and look at that. Slow down and look at God. If you live this life in the second chair long enough, you'll actually start becoming happy for and welcoming of the diversions, even the ones like dirty dishes or the repair project that needs completing because you don't want to face God anymore because you've drifted so far away. And the devil will always be happy to hand that person Martha's busy broom to keep them from taking Mary's spot at Jesus' feet. If you want to move out of that second chair, you'll have to hate it. You'll have to pay any price required to move from it. Think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He asked, essentially, how do I get out of chair two and into chair one? Because he was doing the right things. He had a knowledge of God doing the right things. You know, he, he, he felt like, I know God, but he came to Jesus because there was something missing. He knew there was a little more there that he didn't have. So in effect, his question for, for our example tonight was, how do I get out of chair two and into chair one? And Jesus looked into that man's heart, pointed and said, this is what's holding you to chair two. Whatever sin you can't break free of, that's a lie. Of course God can break you free of it. Of course he's there for you and for that. You have to make the decision. You can move from chair two to chair one. The power of God is there for you to do so. But you will have to want it with all you've got. You will have to hate the thing that is holding you back in chair two. First Corinthians two, some of you are spiritual, some of you are carnal, some of you are natural. In Amos eight, there are children of God who said, when will the Sabbath be passed so we can sell grain? There's an account there in, in the, the book of Amos in chapter 8 where children of God come and say, when will the Sabbath be passed so we can go and sell grain? That's chair two. When can I complete my spiritual obligations so I can get on with work and get on with life? That is chair two. When can I get on with, with my spiritual obligations so that then I can get on to life? What you think of when you think about getting on with life tells you a lot about what chair you're sitting in. The things you think of when you hear the phrase getting on with life, that tells you a lot about what chair you're sitting on. What's really your drive? What's really your motivation? 
What is really going to get you going tomorrow morning? And, and I'm not talking about coffee. I'm asking what's going to get you out of bed and to the coffee pot? What's the thing that's actually going to get you up and going? Obligation? Pursuit of stability? If I don't get up in the morning, I won't get to work. If I won't get to work, I'll disappoint my employer and I won't get my job done. Do you just, will you just go through everything tomorrow and this next week because if you don't, the wheels will come off your life? Or are you going to do it with purpose and drive? Do you have something you're actually heading for? Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We'll start reading at verse 14. <clears throat> Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Does that sound at all like uh, Ephesians 2 that we looked at earlier this week? Revelations 2. Revelation 2, here we have some are hot, some are cold, some are lukewarm. Does that sound a little bit like the three chairs we've looked at? Some are hot. Some are cold, some are lukewarm. God doesn't know what he has with these people. Today, they're doing something for me. Tomorrow, they're off, you know, bopping around doing their own thing. God says he would that you would just pick a lane. Of course, obviously, he, his greatest desire is that you would follow him. But... This is pointing out the, the danger of being in that middle seat. Now, God doesn't despise. He loves. He says, be zealous, get after it, get on it, repent and go for it. You can be free of this chair if you find yourself sitting in chair two. But you have to want it more than anything. And pay the price tag he asks of you. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. Jesus looked into his heart and said, well, there's the thing holding you back. And the man walked away sad. Chair one, are you really in it? Are you really after God? How much, how much of the world do you want for Christ? How much is your life simply his life? That's chair one, sold out for God. Chair two, despise it. Step off that chair so fast it slides away and you march over to chair one. The, 
when I, when I was making my notes, I put the noun that holds you back because I couldn't, I couldn't think of what to put there. And then I realized, well, that's what you put there. The noun that is holding you back, the person, place, thing, or idea that is holding you back from leaving chair two and mediocrity and lukewarmness, the whatever thing, whatever noun, person, place, thing, or idea, whatever it is that is holding you back in chair two, keeping you from going to chair one, you crush that. You kill it. You, you nail it to the cross. Um, Colossians 2.14. You nail it to the cross and you march toward that first chair. Colossians, I didn't put it in my notes. Colossians 2.14 talks about nailing to the cross. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. That is what you need to do to the person, place, thing, or idea that is holding you back and in chair two and keeping you from being fully sold out for God and occupying that first chair. We talked about, we talked about brotherhood a lot over the last two days. Um, Chair one, chair one is right there in the middle of. If we're all sold out for God, then we're all on the same path and we're together in this. Now, time for time for some extra honesty. Makes it sound like I've been less than fully honest so far. Um, frankness. This lesson may hit you hard. It hit me hard when when I was sitting there. And, and there were, the, the fellow was actually using three physical chairs, three folding chairs when he, when he made this illustration when I saw it. It hit me hard. That was a couple of years ago. And what have I really done to change? You know, we all admire holiness as long as it's tomorrow's holiness. We value the thought of chastity while not being chaste. We highly esteem temperance while practicing indulgence. And we think we're better because we highly esteem temperance. We can, we can have this like sweet little imagination that we're living in tomorrow's holiness because we value it today. I value holiness right now. And then I can almost get the idea that, well, I'm living in that. It's got to go deeper than that. We can, we can have the, these bright imaginations that our vague plans to improve tomorrow makes up for being negligent today. Jesus says, follow me, and we say, yes, Lord, and then we follow that with, but first let me, and then we delay to bury our dead, buy fields, examine our properties, all those things that Jesus laid out in his lesson. Follow me, yes, Lord, but first let me, and then we go on to that thing we wanted to do first. We start to believe that wanting to follow, seek, and obey someday is all pretty much the same as actually doing it. And we take comfort in our good intentions to serve the Savior tomorrow or next week or whenever life settles down. I'll be sold out for God, but you know, this next week is full of meetings and so really a lot of my effort is just going to have to go into to making, making work work. Sad thing is, there's a part of my brain that actually kind of believes that. 
that I can do that, that I can just go to work tomorrow and, and have the hammer down and, and kind of just leave God out of the picture because, well, I'll get there eventually. I'll pick him up and make him first in my life again at some point. That's not how it works. We take comfort in the good intentions to serve the Savior tomorrow. So, to be blunt, I expect a room full of well-intentioned Christians like this to be stirred up with a lesson like this, and probably a number like me will be convicted and feel sorrow. But to be frank, I don't know how many of us will repent and how many of us will actually move from the chair we're sitting in. There's no usher for this. You choose your own seat. Let's stand and pray.